Hello, welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Hi, I'm Elijah. I'm Adam. I'm Greg. I'm Paul. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at keytoallmythologies.protonmail.com. Also, please visit our website, keytoallmythologies.com, which has a reading, reading schedule if you'd like to read along with us. We're also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are sold, please give us a five-star <laughs> five rating. Today we're reading the first... <laughs> Today we're reading the first half of the Georgics, and with a summary, here's Adam. The first and second Georgics are difficult texts to summarize. Virgil has written a kind of pastoral poem that cuts rapidly between numerous forms of accumulated human knowledge about the best practices for planting and cultivating olives, grapevines, trees, and grain. But to treat this poem as a primer on how to be a good farmer seems perhaps to misrepresent its purpose and meaning. The Georgics are about farming, but they are also about everything else on earth and in the heavens, from the dirt to the stars. Like all human activities, farming takes place within a social and political context, but Virgil writes to honor farming rather than fighting, as in the Aeneid, and gives it pride of place, since it is the toil and cultivation of the farmer, which he often describes in language highly charged with moral terms, that makes all the other political activities of human beings possible. And here this very much includes all the wars and conquests and power struggles of the Roman Republic as it violently and dramatically becomes the Roman Empire. And here is Greg with the opening question. Yeah, I'll just get right to it. Is this poem actually advice? And if it is advice, who is it composed for? And why is it composed the way it is? Maybe we can start by reading the very end of book two, which I think gives some sort of clue about the audience. So I'll read the last two stanzas of book two. This is what it was like for the Sabines then, and for Romulus and Remus in the old days. This must be how Eritrea grew strong, and Rome became the most beautiful thing there is. One single wall surrounding seven hills. Indeed, before the reign began of the king born on the Cretan mountain, and before impious men first feasted on slaughtered bullocks, this is the way it was for golden Saturn before the time when anyone had heard the loud blare of a military trumpet or the clanging of a sword on the hard anvil. But now we have come a great long way and now the time has come to unyoke our steaming horses. So I, I, I mean, that is not necessarily a governing statement for the whole of the second Georgic or for the first one, but I do think it indicates a way in which Virgil is writing about something that is seems to be endangered or may not be that common to his readers or is in some way idyllic. I would, I would propose maybe as a, a starting point. So there are some things that could be used as practical advice. I mean, I don't, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine a farmer reading this as a guidebook for how to farm well. It's, it's too, it tries to encompass too many things. There are too many digressions. To, there's a lot of philosophical content, but he describes taking, trying to determine if the soil is bitter by pouring the water through a bucket of soil, you know, through a sieve into a vessel and then drinking the water that comes out the bottom and seeing if your mouth tastes bitter, right? That's a very easy to follow, easy to understand and practical guide and to determine whether the soil is bitter or not. So it's not as if there cannot be practical advice drawn from this, but 
the aims of it, you know, seem much more, he seems to be aiming much higher than, than that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, the thing I was wondering is that if you imagine a farmer in Rome, right, probably his great grandfather was a farmer, probably his grandfather was a farmer, probably he's a farmer, probably, I, I mean, my imagination or my thought is that all the advice Virgil gives in this would have, he would have taken it in with his mother's milk, as it were. Like, I can't imagine a farmer reading this being like, oh, I never thought it. Yeah, this seems to be something that every farmer, any farmer with his salt, salt would know. So you're thinking there that this is written with, with the urbane Roman in mind, not with an actual farmer. That's what I was wondering. So I don't, I don't want to make this a, like a historical or a factual point, but I was thinking about it. Uh, like Rome was famous uh, on an economic level for importing grain from their colonies. Um, especially late, late Rome was barely produced anything. And then they just relied on this collective slave labor of millions of people to provide food for their country. And, and so much of this book seems to be about a kind of downfall, right? Like the passage Elijah just read, where the kingdom of Saturn, which is peaceful, is contrasted with the unending wars that define Rome, even though he talks about Rome as being the most beautiful city. So I'm wondering if it's something as simple as I don't want to reduce it, but just to say that most of the farmers have been turned into soldiers in the Roman wars. And there's something like they're either coming back or Virgil wants them to come back and do farming. But in between the process of leaving the farm life, leaving the agrarian tribal existence for you know the modern statist military existence, the knowledge of farming has been compromised. And Virgil sees what he's doing as some kind of essential preservation of that knowledge, even if it's a poetical task rather than a guidebook task. So one thing that I was thinking when you were just reading that, Elijah, was he says the most beautiful thing that there is is Rome. But that sits really strangely with things that had come previously, even just the previous paragraph. If we just go back one page, he describes the idyllic life of the farmer right? How the farmer gets the farmer, the laborer kind of has everything they need from nature. They sleep peacefully in the shade of the tree and they have these very limited, this very limited set of cares. And there's this paragraph that says, there are those who with their oars disturb the waters of dangerous unknown seas and those who rush against the sword and those who insinuate their way into the chamber of a king. There's the one who brings down ruin on a city and all its wretched households in his desire to drink from an ornate cup and go to sleep on Tyrian purple coverlets at night. There's the man who heaps up gold and hides it away, hovering watchfully over it like a lover. There's he who stares up, stupefied at the rostrum. There's the open-mouthed, undone astonishment of the one who hears the waves and waves the wild applause of the close-packed crowd in the theater. There are those who bathe in their brother's blood, rejoicing, and those who give up house and home for exile seeking the land an alien sun shines on. So sounds to me like he's describing the kind of maladies of the civilization there. And he's contrasting that with the life of the farmer. And I think saying the life of the farmer is better, right? Or at least these are, <laughs> these are all the maladies of civilization. And then in the next paragraph, you have this line, Rome is the most beautiful thing that there is. And I thought those two things sat strangely together. But what Greg was saying maybe makes that make more sense and feel like less of a contradiction to me. So basically what you're thinking, Adam, so what Greg was saying was that Virgil potentially is, is trying to 
restore people to a way of life that they once knew, right? He's trying to shift the, the socio socioeconomic development of Rome back towards a Jeffersonian agrarian lifestyle. And so to say that Rome is beautiful is acknowledging that that world that's disappearing is worth preserving is kind of how you're reading it. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally followed the connection you made with Greg, so I'm trying to articulate. Well, I guess I was thinking, if we're imagining the audience for this poem is soldiers returning to Rome from the wars, and Virgil wants to convince them of the virtues of the farming life. Maybe he's trying, you know, he's trying to rhetorically, well, <laughs> now, that, now that I say it, I don't even know. So let's, let me think about it. It just, I mean, I think what I took you to be saying, Adam, is like, it, it seems the, the whole thing reads like some sort of a lament. And like, yes, Rome is great. Rome is beautiful. But there's this, and I think this goes along with what Greg was pointing to, is like, there's been something lost in that. Everything's become urbanized. That's become the central focus of the empire. And what's lost in that is that this form of life, which used to feature so prominently in the state, has taken a step back in terms of prominence, but it's nonetheless still just as vital, obviously, because you have to have food for all these other things to be possible, which is what Greg was saying. Right, right, right. So, so he's saying, he's trying to say Rome is something worth defending, but the, the soldiering way of defending it somehow corrupts it. And this, this is a superior way of defending Rome, a more honorable way of defending Rome. But still, Rome itself remains something worthy of defense. You were mentioning, Greg, when we were reading the Aeneid, that so Lucretius is an Epicurean, is that right? So like six, yeah. six stanzas from the end of book two, uh, Virgil says, so he's talking about wanting to understand why earthquakes happen, how the moon works, but he's unable to. And then he says, that man is blessed who has learned the causes of things and therefore under his feet subjugates fear and the decrees of unrelenting fate and the noises the noise of Acheron's insatiable waters. That seems to me like he, I don't know if he's directly directly referencing Lucretius there, but it seems no, like a Epicurean philosophy for sure. Go ahead. It's a, it's a direct quote. Um, it's lifted out of, uh, that was good eye, Elijah. If you didn't, I, I had to look that one up. I, uh, I, I guessed, but it seemed Lucretian to me. You guessed right. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, and a secondary question that I was thinking about, like with the relation to the gods and astrology, because it's not a simple atheism. It seems like someone could read from Epicurus, but it's certainly a kind of an atheism that I don't know how to fully talk about yet, where we're going to put aside fate, we're going to put aside luck, and we're going to learn how to take something that seems quite sporadic or seems confused and reduce it to a system of knowledge. And that'll be farming. That'll be good. And that to me seems something like, oh, this poem is legitimately advice. I, can, you know, I, and I, and I, I'm, I'm really dancing around that, like, oh, this is, this is an ode or like some kind of pan to an, in, to an extinct way of life that he's trying to resuscitate, which to me doesn't quite sound like advice, right? That would be an urban audience who he's like calling back to, or if he's saying like, no, this is, this is a concrete way that we can go about dwelling again and that does sound more like a dictum or something i don't know according to a an, a little essay i read by david fair whose translation i've been reading from something like one in every 10 lines 
is either a direct quote or an allusion to Lucretius on the nature of things. So there's a really close relationship between those two. It feels like that's why this can't be like simply a, a desire to go back to the past or something like that. Because it's like, it, that just feels a very unlike what a Lucretius person, someone who believed the way that Lucretius and Epicurus did. It's like change just happens, but change is, is sort of neutral. Like we're not to say it's good or bad. But I, but I do feel like there's something to be said for it to acknowledge it. Like with what's been gained, the beauty of Rome, we should acknowledge what's been lost. Can we look, I think, I think that's right, Paul. Can we look at, it's about in the middle of book one of the Georgics, and it's a stanza that starts with, after the rain goes by, you can expect a period of bright sun and cloudless sky. So at the end, he he's talking about the trees, and he's sort of expressing this, some sort of enchantment, but then, but then he doesn't want to think about it in maybe the traditional way. Maybe we can think about that and how that connects to what Paul's saying. So he talks about after the rain going by, and then the next stanza is pay attention to the sun and moon. So I'm reading from the one before that. Quieter than it usually is, the hoarse voice of the raven is heard, repeated maybe three or four times over, or high in the trees, among the leaves, you can hear them talking together in some uncanny way, expressing delight at being home and safe in their sweet nests along with their young. I do not think this means that they've been granted wisdom by the gods or a special providential power by fate. But when in its changing ways, the weather changes and Jupiter Pluvius causes the rain to fall, then causes the skies to clear, then something changes, changes in their minds, something is different, different in their breasts from what it was when the wind was bringing clouds and bringing rain. That's why the birds are singing and why the lambs look happy in the fields and the ravens are talking, All right? So this is an interesting moment, right? The, the raven is expressing in some uncanny way, expressing delight, but don't be fooled into thinking that it's the gods or fate. There's a scientific explanation. The weather, the weather's changing and that changes what's going on inside these birds. And that is the source of the beauty. And I think he still thinks that it's special. It's worth preserving. It's important, but it's not uh, divine in any conventional way. If that makes sense. I'm a little wary of the word scientific just at least in the modern sense i feel like there is a, a real sense in this poem that nat that animals and trees and plants have their own kind of life that is separate from our kind of life but they they do seem to have i mean not separate that is interacts with our with with human beings and this human civilization but is separate from human civilization i, I think he personifies plants and animals in a way that i in the earth and dirt in a way that I don't think is completely metaphorical. He seems to grant them their own kind of interiority. I'm not sure exactly what the right words to use are, but their own kind of being, their own kind of way of being. That part of being a good farmer is respecting the way of being of plants and animals. Adam, I think that's totally right. And scientific isn't the right word, but it's the non-traditional explanation. Is right, right, right. So yeah, it's not like a, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, it's particularly non-mythic. So there is somehow a, a, you don't have to go to Jupiter the man, you can go to Jupiter the rains to find a complete explanation for the, for the motions of the birds, which would, which would be a real transformation of, of the tradition there. Well, so what do you make then of, the, of this part right at the beginning where he attributes the need for toil to Jupiter? Near the beginning, it's probably three or four pages, four pages in the beginning in ours, and the stanza begins, but though both men and cattle do their work, 
and ends with toil was toil relentless toil urged on by need. So here he's describing why people have to labor to get food. <laughs> and he says, for father Jupiter himself ordained that the way should not be easy. It was he who first established the art of cultivation, sharpening with their cares, the skills of men, forbidding the world he rules to slumber in ease. Before Jove's time, no farmer plowed the earth. It was forbidden to mark out field from field, setting out limits one from another. Men shared all things together and earth quite freely yielded the gifts of herself she gave, being unasked. It was Jupiter who put the deadly poison into the fangs of serpents, commanded the wolf to seek and find its prey, ordained that the storm should cause the sea to rise and flood the land, stripped from the leaves of oaks the dew-like honey that made them glisten there, hid fire from man, turned off the flow of wine that everywhere ran in the streams. All this so want should be the cause of human ingenuity and ingenuity the cause of arts, finding little by little the way to plant new crops by means of plowing and strike the spark to ignite the hidden fire in veins of flint. I agree with what you, we were saying that we don't have to, and what Elijah read, we don't have to think about Jupiter as Jupiter the god, more of Jupiter as a natural cause of rains and the cycle of water falling and evaporating and falling and evaporating. But it, if that's the way we're thinking about it, then it's less clear to me how to think about describing this kind of fall away from a mythical prehistorical paradise as being caused by something Jupiter wills. Yeah, I think that's interesting, Adam. I think the what's if you look, if you go, if you go to the very end of that paragraph, it says the stanza. Then came the hardness of the iron and the streak of the sharp blade of the saw as it made its way. For earlier men used wedges to cleave their wood. Then followed other arts, and everything was toil, relentless toil, urged on by need. And that seems to be a direct contradiction of that passage where he says, "Easy is the life of the farmer compared to the guy in the city. Easy is the life." And this is what I wanted to state about like the kind of downfall. It seems like the downfall of the human race is somehow inevitable or natural or preordained. And maybe Jupiter is just the movement of that natural progression, which really makes it striking that Virgil would be saying, stop this fall into need and labor. And it feels like there's this direct relationship between labor and like struggle. And sometimes he identifies farming with it. Um, and sometimes it's they're, they're, they're separated out. And I really, I don't know enough to tell the difference between them. Like I know obviously farming's hard work, but I, I want to say there's, there's something more important or interesting that he's doing with that. And I can't figure it out. Can we keep reading in that stanza? Uh, and I'm wondering what's going on chronologically here. So what, Greg just finished reading, right? Men learned how to use these arts. Everything was toil, relentless toil, urged on by need. There came a day when in the sacred wood, the acorns and arbutus began to fail and the oracle of Zeus denied men food. So is this day, is he now going farther back in the past to describe what happened that led up to everything Greg read about or what? It was then that Ceres first taught us how to turn the soil with iron instruments as trouble came to the grain, the evil rust blight eating into the stems, the sluggish hairy thistle prospering in, in the fields, destroying crops, and in their place a thorny undergrowth, caltrops, goose grass, and other burry things. So in this 
I guess I would say second account of the fall of humankind. <laughs> it, it, it's really, it's pinpointed to a day and it's pinpointed to the Oracle of Zeus denying men food. That seems specific. Yeah, I, I don't know how to mesh that with the more sort of organic reading that Adam is suggesting. Well, so if you, if you keep reading further, he says, he says, um, the soil with iron instruments as trouble came to the grain, right? We just read this, destroying crops and then caltrops, goosegrass and other furry things. Among the smiling cultivated plants thrive tarnal, darnel and tares and sterile oak grass thrive. Therefore, unless you take up your hoe, attacking the enemy weeds over and over again and over again, shouting at the birds to scare them away, use your pruning knife to keep on cutting back the overgrowth that threatens your plants with shade, you will, alas, end up defeated, staring at your neighbor's granary full of corn, right? And that envy seems to be the beginning of war. And in the woods, you'll shake the oak tree frantic for something to eat. And then it the following line is, now I must tell you about the weapons the farmer needs for his crops. So it's almost like this Hobbesian account of like descent into a state of war from the original state of nature. But it, I can't tell- Can I, can I jump know, in, Greg? Yes, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say it's the Rousseau's account, right? Hobbes's account is we're in a state of war and civilization brings us out. Sorry, yeah, I was just yeah. speaking generally, not to say like it matches, but, but, I, it, but it's, it's Hobbes's account because what's well, both of their accounts because we naturally fall into a state of war because nature fails to provide. That's only one thread, right? There is the thread of nature is against us and we have to constantly be attacking it with our weapons in order to beat it into submission. And this, he uses the word discipline several times, discipline the dirt, discipline the trees, discipline the grain to give us food. But there's also a thread of some of the things we've read describe this and there are other passages about the idol, ideal of the farmer's life where there seems to be a genuine feeling of, of joy, right? In the, in the ability of human beings to, and even in the passage we've just read about, about Jupiter forcing us to develop the art of cultivation by making things difficult, by turning the flow of, of wine off. We have to learn, we have to teach ourselves how to grow grapevines, how to cultivate grapevines. But I think Virgil sees some sort of something noble in that too. Right? I don't think it's all just the narrative of decline and fall away from a pre, uh, prehistorical golden age. Yeah, I like that one. And Greg, I think you're right. It doesn't have to be either or, but I, I brought up the Rousseau because I saw a couple resonances that I wanted to mention, right? Um, before Job's time, no farmer plowed the earth. It was forbidden to mark out field from field, setting out limits, right? That's mm -hmm. like straight out of the second discourse, right? Rousseau, Rousseau says curse, like curses. On I think he might be literally quoting in the second discourse. I'd have to look it up, but I mean, it's really, really close mm -hmm. to the person who found civil society. Right. And then the second one is the envy of the neighbor, right? In the second discourse, that's the major problem is once people start conglomerating, once envy enters the scene, right? Once we s switch from amour de soi-même, self-love to amour prop, which is egotism or another kind of self-love that's like but the other reason I like to think about Rousseau here is that for Rousseau it's complicated in exactly the way Adam was talking about it yes the advent of civilization brought all these woes on us but it also made a lot of things possible there's that real sort of ambivalence about society and Rousseau that I think is somewhat parallel to to what Adam is wanting us to think about whereas 
with Hobbes, I think civilization, he's a little bit more, he's a little bit more like, yeah, this is a good thing. And it would be bad if we didn't have it. There's a little bit more tension here. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that I, I wanted to point out is it's just this weird blending, right, of military language with weapons. But to tell this, it's like an, I mean, it really is an origin story of why farming exists, which is so strange in a narrative that's all about let's go melt the swords back into plowshares. There's a one, this one line that's kind of haunting me where he says, toil conquers all. I don't know if that's in your translation, but in Latin it's labor omnia winket, which is, it's the same conquest that is military conquest. Like, like this military language. I'm wondering if something like the, the reason he's telling this origin story is not because it's to be believed literally, but he needs a way to explain our middle state where there's no innocence, there's no purity, there's no immediate authentic nature, but that already na the nature is somehow civilized. Um, because really, if you look at it, it's, this, it's presented as this purity that's lost, but I can't tell if he literally believes it given the later passages in the story. So I'm wondering if like he sets this up just to appease a certain feeling of the reader, which is we already feel like we've fallen from grace, that innocence is lost, and that there was a proper world that can no longer be had, rather than saying this is an actual story, this is an actual sequence of events, and this is the way things are. Yeah, I think one way to think about the passage we were reading where he talks about Jupiter being the cause of toil is something like that. It's not a fall in the Christian sense, but a, a way to give people the ability to deal with this, the fact that you have to work hard to survive, but also the, the fact that you have this like universal human sense of like declining away from a better past. I mean, I guess you could ask where that sense comes from, but I'm not sure the poem, this poem is quite concerned with that. It's more concerned with the way that things are and trying to reconcile ourselves with the, the position we're in our relationship to nature and what nature demands of us and what kind of a thing farming and animal husbandry what kind of things they are i i think that's right and i think greg is totally right to make us or to invite us to think about the military language i was really struck by in the second georgic he has this military metaphor. He's, he's telling people how to space out their crops, right? And so he says, space out the plantings with exactitude as when before the battle, the cohorts are all deployed and ready, rank after regular rank, the gleam of steel reflecting gleam of steel across the plain as far as the eye can see. And Mars, the God of war has not yet decided which army will be the victor walks between them. Just so, deploy your vines in equal numbers so that the lines are uniform and straight, not merely for the pleasure of the prospect, but so the soil may give its strength to all the vines in equal measure and their branches freely extend themselves upon the air. So I think in light of passages like that, it's difficult to make any absolute distinction between warfare and agriculture as activities, right? They share something uh, in common. and. The second thing I'm thinking about is how in the Aeneid, so often in the midst of war, Virgil would make an agricultural metaphor to explain what was going on. And now when he's writing about agriculture, he makes a military metaphor to explain what's going on. 
you know, and later, and I read the part, right? Later he says, those happy farmers who are far from the battlefield, but are they, <laughs> right? That's kind of the question of the poem. Well, and maybe this is one way of addressing your concern of the use of the word toil will save all or whatever, right? I think what he's, he's advocating for a certain kind of toil, right? I mean, if we think about what Georgics means, it's earth and work, right? It's like those two words combine and it feels like it's advocating for a certain kind of work. And like earthwork sounds opposed to like something like political work or like military work or something like that. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of the way I was, I had it in mind. I think the tension this brings up is what we were talking about earlier in the agency that Virgil seems to impute to the earth, right? So in some, in some sense, the farmers are approaching it in a militant fashion, but in another sense, Virgil wants to say, these things have their own existence or value or being, or perhaps agency in some way that must be, I don't know if he would say respected. I don't know if I'm sort of projecting a, a more ecological sensibility than he actually had, but thinking about what earthwork means, I think is an interesting question. And it's not clear to me that earth is the enemy that must be dominated, but there are passages that seem to suggest as much. Yeah, I think that's right, especially with the cattle or like the goats being the venom of their sharp teeth has done more damage to plants than anything, right? So nature itself is opposed. There's no pure nature that doesn't unharmed, right? The, the animals annihilate the plants just as much as battle, you know, the warriors annihilate each other in battle. Yeah, I mean, I think he certainly doesn't want to write some naive representation of nature as a, as a peaceful ideal it's that's, been, that's been ruined by the insertion of human activity into it, right? That's maybe sort of what Rousseau is doing, or that's a way to think about where Rousseau goes wrong. But he, he sees those things as being in relationship, and he sees human activity as part of nature, right? And as the working of the fields as something akin to what the animals do to the plants when they eat them, and something akin to, to fighting, maybe. So there's always this element of conflict and this element of mutual interdependence or collaboration or something. I don't think we need to give him like an, an ecological mindset, but I do think he, this is obviously the product of someone who's been paying very careful attention to the raising of plants and the practices that farmers put into place. Even if he's not writing this is a farming manual, he does seem to know what he's talking about. I mean, just, just the act of paying careful attention to something is a, kind of respect for it right there's this curious passage in the first georgic stanza that starts therefore a second time therefore a second time philippi saw armies of brother romans using roman weapons to clash in war with one another and the gods above decided it was not unfitting that the macedonian fields should be nourished with our blood a second time and someday in those fields the crooked plow of a farmer laboring there will turn up a spear almost eaten away with rust or his heavy hoe will bump against an empty helmet and he'll wonder at the giant bones in that graveyard. I think that passage is imagining a farmer in some dis seemingly distant future where the civil, the meaning of these civil wars have, has been forgotten and the weapons themselves have turned to rust and, and the blood of the soldiers has fertilized the land, right? But the activity of farming goes on. And I mean, it's a very holistic way of thinking about the relationship between 
farming and fighting in that sense, right? Farming, obviously, the food that farming generates is required for soldiers to go to war, but, you know, the soldiers die, their blood nourishes the field, and in some distant future, a distant future farmer wonders at the meaning of his bone when the, the wars of Virgil's time have been forgotten. Well, and sort of definitionally, we can, we can imagine humanity without war, but we can't imagine humanity without food production, right? Yeah, you can't even imagine war without food production. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's sort of a rent scheme, right, in the human condition, right? Labor is that cyclical thing that, that is the basis of life. And I guess you would call war action, probably. But, right, action, so labor is the, the, the most animalistic of the human functions. It's totally cyclical. On top of that, you have work, which is world building. And then you have action, which is essentially like self-expression or political meaning but they're all dependent on labor. And even throughout the poem, we see this sort of cyclical, it's got, I didn't map it out, but it seems to have something of a secular structure, even in the way it talks about seasons and sort of moves from topic to topic. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, we're constantly having our attention drawn to the actions the farmers must perform over and over again, if they're going to be successful. And then to the relationship of the predictable movements of the stars and what kind of signs those movements are and what those signs tell us about what's going to happen on the earth right and when it's good to plant and when it's good to harvest and when storms are coming and when storms will end so i think everything we're saying is true but i still don't feel like we're seeing this text and i don't know what like what's missing but there's that i mean maybe it's as simple as like is writing from a position of an empire in crisis. He sees the farmer as this naturalistic mode that's proper. And he's calling people back to their proper original relation to the world. And that's why this poem exists, right? It's like a draw back to a proper state. But I don't know if I understand what that means even though I can say it because there seems to be some kind of like motive almost driving this work that I still don't understand. Like there's a way of life that Virgil embodies or understands that just that this work is flowing out of that I can't see. So for instance, he seems clearly experienced in farming, but he's a poet. He seems somewhat knowledgeable of war, though he's skeptical of it. He's certainly around in the city of Rome, but it seems like he's entirely skeptical of politics or the things. He's writing these pans to Augustus to say, stop the civil wars or whatever. So he seems to be understanding himself as a man of some influence and position. But I just can't situate him in the world or in his society. And I can't tell what his people, what he wants for the people because it's not like it's an ideology where you can just read it and like, oh, you either get it or you don't. I'm on the same page and you just discard it, right? He's like calling for some kind of proper way of life that is always available to be embodied. And I'm not a farmer, right? So so why why does this book mean anything? Maybe it's a better way to say that. I don't know. I'm, I'm really struggling to get out at the heart of this at all. I mean, thinking about what, what Adam said and then what you said, Greg, I mean, it almost seems like 
I'm going to put something out there. I'm not sure if it's going to make sense. I'm thinking about the question concerning technology, right? The Heidegger essay that I think we all know. And I mean, in some way is Virgil trying to use language to reveal some aspect of, of, of being that he feels has been lost, right? There's the, the Romans can no longer, I don't know, now I'm getting this language that I don't even necessarily want to use. But I guess I'm wondering, is he tr he's trying to use words to, re to re reveal some aspect of life. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we can say it's, it's about, this book is about, or this poem is about change. And I think he's trying to delineate two different kinds of change. And one is the, the, the naturalistic version, which is cyclical, which is still, it's still violent. Um, it requires labor and toil to, you know, sort of defend yourself against that violence, but it's eternal. It's not going to go away. And, and there's some sort of like peace and, and um, harmony that can be found in, in that. Opposing that to a political kind of change, which is not as, which is still undergoes the same violent changes and everything, but it's not the, it's not the same kind of cyclical kind. And so there's a certain, it feels like he's trying to get a certain kind of comfort for himself and his countrymen in that and reminding them sort of the smallness of their humanly activities as opposed to the activities of nature. So you're thinking of in terms of like human psychology there. You can maybe say the audience is not people who are farmers or know about farming and who don't think of farming as a, an honorable way to live. And maybe not honorable is the right word, but the, who compare farming indigenously with, uh, with soldiering or being a senator or something. And Virgil is writing to remind them that there's, even if you're not going to go be a farmer, your way of life depends on this way of life. And there, there's like some kind of, there are some kind of resources there you can draw on to improve your own life in, in the city. There, there's like, a, like an emotional or psychological calm that's available to you when you contemplate the nature of human action against the backdrop of of nature yeah i mean something like that I, I it feels proto stoic to me like and i think the the sort of detachment is found by remembering yourself what true eternality is and that's found in nature and not in politics like what kind of was coming to mind was when elijah brought up the question concerning technology right because how that essay kind of resolves is heidegger sort of reimagining essentiality as being that which endures and it feels like Virgil's maybe doing his own version of that and trying to speak to what actually endures and it's not political activity it's not political regimes it's nature it's the cyclical changingness the seasonal changingness of nature there's I think there's like a sort of stoical comfort that can be found in that is there was that one line where he literally says men are as stones or in that case it's where he describes them being created from lapidus stone and they are therefore durum which is hardness or you know it's the same root as enduring i think that's that's right paul where he's like awakening us to some unavoidable essential trait of the farmer as being that which is intimately bound up in nature and particularly the nature of labor 
and hardness. What the farmer does is break the earth. Four parts. You break the earth, you plant the plants, but the plants you don't really need to plant, right? Like so much of the tree section is basically like, and they'll do it themselves. The first part though, when you're breaking the earth, that's really serious, right? That's where he lays out all his toil stuff. Then the second book, I'm starting to see like an architecture of this book that I had a hard time noticing before. Then in the second book, everything's easy, right? So the first book, anxious. What are the stars like? What are the animals like? Have you broken the earth at the right time? Right, there's so many moments where you could screw up and get killed. In the second book, you test the soil, you put the right plants in the right thing, but honestly, you're probably not dumb enough to plant peach trees in Siberia or something, right? Like you can figure it out because that's where trees grow and then they grow themselves. And then he has a whole tangent where easy is the farmer, easy is the man who watches plants grow of their own accord than the politician who has to manage all these horrible things. And I think that progression is a kind of like letting us into ourselves as who we are. I don't know if that makes sense where it's like, it's not that life is hard or laborious or not hard and not laborious, but like if we're these beings that are put into an eternal and cyclical process, then we're not looking for one answer, we're looking for what is a what is a proper way entire way of life and that'll go through these motions can we look at like it's the fifth stanza of the second georgic and maybe think more about how he conceptualizes earth or earthiness uh, as a way of maybe continuing to think about our question so he says the trees that rise up of their own free will into the light, wild, happy in the strength they got from nature's power in the earth, do not bear fruit of their own spontaneous selves. But if they're grafted or taken up and replanted in holes that have been carefully prepared, they'll give up their wildness and with frequent tilling, be ready to learn whatever you want them to learn. What do you guys make of this moment? One thing I think it's another time where he treats the, the forms of life that human beings are trying to cultivate as having some kind of being independent of human actions, right? I think that's a really hard thing to talk about and think about. And I mean, I think it's one of the things that makes this poetry and not a manual about farming is that we're, 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 we're operating in uh, intuitive and mythic spaces in the sense that we're at the edges of what language can do right and i think that trying to talk about the ways of being of trees that are not our ways of being if we even want to grant that such a thing exists and those terms are at all accurate it's, it's really hard for language to do that right but it's, it's really interestingly poised morally it's it's very almost sounds like a condemnation of the action right because it's like the trees have free will and they're springing they're joyfully springing up from the earth of their own free will and doing what they're just naturally meant to do and what they want to do but you can also bend the will of the trees to your will. I'm not well, and humans, that. humans naturally do that, right? We, right? That is our way. Is we we want to order things. Yeah, order is very important. Yeah. There's no military language there, though, right? It's somehow we're doing it. We're doing it in a friendly way or something. We're not we're not like attacking the trees. We're we're working with the trees. But that yeah. Well, he says uh, they'll give up their wildness and with frequent tilling be ready to learn whatever you want them to learn. So it seems like a, a symbiotic relationship in the good sense. 
Yeah, there are several. I, I couldn't find the passages now, but there's a part where he talks about how when you graft a young grapevine into a new area, you have to be very careful and treat it with tender, like loving tenderness, because it's so young and it's used to this familiar place, you know, and it's very, it's very fragile. Has has it's like a child, you know. He thinks of the life of a plant, the life form of a plant. This may be pushing it a little too far, but I almost got the sense there that he was saying to be the best cultivator of grapevines you can be, you need to imagine like the way the earth looks from the inside of, from the grapevine's point of view, <laughs> you know? This is from the second Georgic, which is what Adam's referring to. Uh, while they're still very young, their leaves just new, go easy with them, respect their tenderness. And while the tendril joyful puts itself forth, reaching up skyward into the air unfettered, do not attack the vine as yet with your knife, but carefully with your fingers pluck and pick. And then when the vine has grown, embracing the elms with stronger stems, the time has come when you, before they're wary of the pruning knife, can strip away locks and clips of clinging arms, enforcing your stern dominion to restrain the overflowing profusion of the branches. In other words, make them give up their wildness, to use the language from earlier. But there's also the part that you might've been thinking about Adam, where when you transplant a plant from one place to another, you need to make sure that it's facing the sun in the right way so that it doesn't feel like it's left its home uh, and make sure it's the same sort of soil. The really good farmers will make sure that the transplanted plant hardly notices that it's been yeah, transplanted. Like when it gets to its new location, yeah. Well, I bet wildness there means probably something like not ordered. Right, so nature, it's, it's not a matter of just leaving nature be and letting it be wild, but it's a matter of judiciously and wisely ordering it for certain ends. And if you, if you abuse nature in the sense that you come up to your young, your young transplant and hack at it with a knife, not you will not only destroy it, but you won't, you won't fulfill your purpose of cultivating in the sense of ordering the earth. But to your point, it's not like an ordering that is free of the constraints and order of, you know, the, the way that nature is ordered, which is like, you have to give it sun, you have to give it water, it needs the right kind of soil. And those are all like predetermined. And if you, if you completely ignore that level of nature, that wildness, I guess that doesn't really work with what I just said about what wildness might mean. But you know what I mean? Like if you leave it up to if you completely ignore certain calls of nature, then it won't, your orderedness doesn't ultimately matter. So in the Latin, the wildness is silvestrum, which is like, silvus is the wood. So wildness is like the being the woodness of the wood, right? Like and you, you go to like the fullest, you know, those old growth forests that are untouched by human being. So they have a being unto themselves, right? Earth has lifted them up. They're like great and mighty trees, but they're, they'd be totally useless and terrifying places for humans. I think we're all thinking roughly in the same way, which is that, yeah, he's calling out from the woods uh, an other being, and he's through some kind of fundamental violence bringing that into useful cohabitation with the farmer and the human. And I don't think he feels like a moral loss there because we don't want to essentialize this into some weird environmentalist thing. But, you know, the, the grafting is you take a knife into the tree and bring something that does not belong to it. 
and that it could possibly give up of its own volition. I think that's right. I think, I mean, this is what was, uh, I'm trying to remember uh, Francis Bacon's famous phrase about nature, right? We're going to turn it into our whipping boy <laughs> and, uh, and basically shape it according to all our desires. And what I took Paul to be saying is that this is, that doesn't seem to be what Virgil's thinking about here. Virgil's saying something like, with much attentiveness and care, you can know the nature of nature. <laughs> and then knowing the nature of nature, you can bring out latent possibilities in a way that orders the human world. And really this ordered human world that we're talking about is, is the, the space between the totally urban space and the old growth wild forest that Greg was talking about. There's a, a middle space where humanity, human, the man is close with nature, but there's like some sort of equilibrium there. I mean, I don't know if we would say it's pleasant for nature, but it's pleasant for, for humanity. So that was what I was going to ask. Like, that sounds good. I, I wonder where that order, where that desire for order on our part is supposed to drive from in the terms of this poem. Is it just that it's just the kind of being we are and that there's no further explanation? Because the thing that we read at the beginning about with, you know, Jupiter being the cause of having to toil puts the origin of that at the feet of the God, at the feet of Job overthrowing Saturn. But I don't think this poem is in no way seems to me to be, it's not a religious poem in that sense, right? It's, it's a Lucretian Epicurean poem. And I guess it's just a question about Epicureanism and Stoicism as a philosophy, but like where, where, is, uh, where does that need for order derive from? It's just like essential to us or what? Kind of in the myth, is, it's essentially caused by hunger, right? We're the sort of beings that want to survive. Jupiter turns off the, the bountiful, plen the, the plenitude of food that we have. And so we're forced to invent ways to get things like wine and bees and meat and plants because we would rather live than die. I don't know, is that too simplistic? I don't think it is. I mean, obviously there's a lot we could say about it, but I, I do think it's something like teleological. Like we have to treat nature in a way that is beneficial to ourselves. Yeah, that's not simply leaving nature to alone to itself, but it's also being sensitive to what is good for nature because those natural objects like plants and animals and so on are going to benefit us if we can be sensitive to what is good for them. The, the exact language, I just want to put on the table, the exact language. So Jupiter causes the sea to rise, stripped the leaves of oak, hid fire from man, turned off the flow of wine. All this so want should be the cause of human ingenuity and ingenuity the cause of arts. One striking thing about this poem is that the arts in question there are exclusively agricultural. Maybe shipbuilding is, is invoked at some point, but you never get anything like political arts or, or you know poetry, the art of poetry, or any kind of graphic arts, anything like that. Those are not treated as significant human achievements. Greg, do you feel like uh, any of this has addressed your question, or <laughs> does it remain haunting? No, it's it's helping. I think. You know, I, we're only halfway done, so I'm I'm excited to see what comes next. Especially when he starts dealing with non-human animals, cows and bees, domesticated animals. I think will be interesting. You know, like I'm, I'm a very postmodern person, relating to a kind of natural bucolic 
description is just literally hard to, for me, even though it shares a lot of the same values I have. And I think I want to make sure I'm not dismissing something or missing something crucial because of my enormous blinders that I walk about with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all of us, Greg. Yeah, I would say that I really want to believe that uh, trees have their own lives and their own way of being. But when I try to think rigorously about what that would mean or what what that is or could be, I, I don't know. I find it very hard to conceptualize. Oh, that one makes perfect sense to me. That's like the thing that I was like, yeah, I get that one. Where it's so like, think about it like this. Every plant, every single organism can tell the difference between light and dark. And if you put a plant in a dark room, it will grow and manifest towards the light with an unlimited amount of fervor. Like it's literally existential for that plant. And I think that kind of like, like it seems like if you if you're intimately involved in the natural world in a more profound way than than having like a couple weird sprawled out plants on your windowsill like I have, you'd be you'd be constantly confronted with the fact that every plant unfurls towards its own living existence. I think that's kind of what that passage about and the earth has the natural has the native. So my, my translation is trees that of free will will lift themselves into realms of light, spring up unfruitful, but rejoicing in their strength or within the soil's native forest. The moment where we notice the natural world having being outside of us is just the simple wonder at the power. Like I, I was like, I was like kayaking down the river in Austin earlier today and thick trees were overgrowing the riverbanks in this place that's like utterly urban decayed, right? There's trash everywhere, but these beautiful, beautiful cypress trees that were just totally manifesting. They were showing up again and again in their entirety. And I think that's, that's the clue that the natural world is there, right? And like the forests he's talking about have all been logged, but the presence of some kind of vitality or natality that's abundant seems to be like one of the key differences between plants and humans. No, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I think that I agree, although I can imagine a kind of Darwinian response, but I, I do think that Virgil is saying that the way, that way that we display our vitality is exactly through cultivating the land, right? And bringing our, our order and our discipline to, to it and working, working with it, but, but changing it to our need through our will. That is our display of, yeah, of a vital need and the manifestation of our the human spirit on, on the lens. I think my thing with like thinking about how Virgil can speak, speak to like a modern person and our relationship to nature, I guess the thing that feels very fundamentally different to me is Virgil still seems to be operating with, I mean, I think he is operating with the sense that nature is very much apart from us in a richly autonomous way. I think what you're saying is right, Greg, but like with like industrialization and like the advancement of technology and stuff, it's like at any given moment, any swath of land, any piece of nature could just be like utterly eradicated. And it's like, and it's not unless we put political measures in place that it, that, that it won't be in a lot of cases, right? 
and there's just no sense of that with Virgil. Like, yeah, there might be like pieces of the, the land that have been like completely logged and taken over and stuff, but nature itself still exists outside of man's control. It doesn't need political protections and things like that. That sense feels very different to me. Right, when he talks about how sturdy and durable the oak is, that was a scene that seems outside of our culture. I've literally watched like thousands of oaks be cut down. Beautiful, beautiful old, well, not, I mean, they're not even terribly old, right? This is not the first time these forests have been logged in Austin. So like, yeah, that's an absurdity. But I've watched thousands and thousands of these old oaks be clear cut to build, you know, three-story apartment buildings that, you know, made out of paper and fiberglass. It's that old duration thing, right? The, the duration of the natural world is somehow much more inherent to him than something like our concept of the duration of the natural world. And it seems like the earth is a far more vital force because our earth is not soil anymore, right? It's pavement and it's concrete. Right, like it, it seems like almost like in this poem, the ground is like singing up into trees, their life, right? He uses like animum is spirit there, but it also has a connotation of breath, right? And air is just fused into these trees as they like lift up to the sky. And they do it joyfully. Whereas our trees sickly push through the cracks in the pavement. And it's still like an incredibly vital act, right? Against all odds. Nature will, will will push through its own vitality and existence, but it, yeah, that is something very hard to find now. Kind of, kind of what you both are getting at is that for Virgil, right? He seems to be writing this poem to encourage his listeners to be attentive to nature, and then and then literally to encourage them to give them courage to to face it in some way because it threatens to overwhelm. Whereas the modern problem or situation is that we're trying to convince people to not destroy nature, which and in, and in that scenario, nature appears to be highly vulnerable relative to our technology. I mean, it's an entirely different situation. On a different note, before we go to the end, I, I wanted to read my favorite or one of my favorite moments that just was, I thought, very funny and I just didn't want to pass it over. He's in the second Georgic, he's going through all the different regions and the different things they produce. And then he has this little interesting aside. So he says, in Medea, there grows a citron tree with its restorative fruit, sour in taste and aftertaste. Suppose your cruel stepmother one day poisons your cup, muttering spells as she mixes in the herbs. The juice of this fruit will come to your body's aid, expelling the deadly venom from your veins. And it was, <laughs> I don't know how like common this occurrence was, but it was just like, you know, the the whole, he's describing all these places and it's very economical. And then he takes like four or five lines to say, you know, you probably had your stepmother try to poison you. And this, this herb from Medea will do the trick. And uh, the person who owned the book before me in their notes just wrote next to it random. Um, <laughs> But I, I don't know, it was, just, I, it was just a very funny moment. I don't know, it was like a, I don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but I found it very funny. You haven't had your stepmom try to poison you, Elijah? What privilege. <laughs> so that is actionable advice. If someone tries to poison you, here's the herb you need. To... <laughs> when your stepmother tries to poison you.
Yes, mm-hmm. Muttering spells as she mixes in the herbs. That I, I think that's part of. I actually think it's relevant to my concern. Sorry to like loop it back into that. No, but like no. this book is really, it, it it does function with advice, right? It's not devoid of that. It's it's a literal concrete <laughs> astrological calendar that dictates. It dictates a pattern of planting. It dictates a process of tillage. It says, yeah, you're from certain regions, but it's like, here's a tip, here's a tip, here's a tip. And that kind of easiness of advice giving implies, to me at least, that this book is is actually written for people's benefit and work. And I think mm-hmm. part of the reason why it's a poem is that hopefully it would be to make advice easy to remember or recognize. But I'm wondering too if he's doing something like it's a it's a refounding document of Roman society where like he's taking all this wisdom. I mean, there's that one line he says where it's like, I have got a million maxims that I could give you, but I'll spare them. He's still he's he sees himself as a recipient of a tradition. He's passing it on in the hopes that you'll actually engage with it. That you, you know, you'll go out there and you'll you'll sew your fences tight because you don't want goats to get, get in there in there. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, those goats, their their teeth are as sharp as anything else in the natural world. I don't know. And that 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 level of practicality does mean that this poem has a direct meaning rather than a purely symbolic one or something philosophic one yeah i mean one of the questions i was thinking about well so i think another difference between the world virgil's speaking to in our world is that your your average person in rome not your elite your average person probably suffered from a a scarcity of information so it would make sense that this sort of didactic purpose whereas we're you know inundated with information i do think it's worth to go back a little bit i do think it's worth pointing out it only it's obvious that yes, it's true that our relationship to the woods or the forest or the goats or something is different than it would have been for people in Virgil's time. We are still in this kind of situation with nature, right? Like we are not, I mean, he, he refers to these storms several times that you can kind of use signs to predict when they're coming, but you kind of there's an element of chaos to it as well. And even when you can predict that it's coming, you don't know how powerful it's going to be. And all you can really do is just tie your boat as tightly as you can to the land or get into your house and huddle together and hope that it's not so powerful that it rips all the trees out of the ground and destroys all the work you put into your fields. I mean, we're, we're still in that kind of position with nature, right? I mean, we cannot control when storms arrive. We cannot control hurricanes and we certainly can't control the large scale macroscopic effects of our actions at a, you know, a global level. I mean, we're, if anything, we should be more, we should be living in greater fear of. No, but, but the, but the point is, is that all of the, the, when we, when now when a big storm hits, we say, well, global warming. And what does that mean? Like, it means, well, because of our action, human action, we have forced nature into this position. And if we were just to change our ways, we would we would write this wrong. Virgil has no sense. Of yeah, but nature is, is re- nature is reacting to us in a way that we do not want and we did not anticipate. I know, but there's still the sense that we're the ones in control. That's not the case with Virgil. Not in this totalizing way, the way that it is now. Yeah, but I mean, I think that one lesson this poem might teach us is that with that sense that we're in control even now is incorrect. I think that's somewhat true adam but like i've never been starving 
I've never been starving because of a drought. That level of security that's guaranteed, like I, I, I know nothing about food. I'm completely incompetent at my own survival. That is a radical sense of security. I'm gonna live in Kentucky and if a tornado comes from my house, it is insured. Someone will rebuild the house for me at probably not full cost, but very substantial cost, right? Or like I drove through Alabama and it was like right after they've been hit by a hurricane, all of these roofs are stripped. And yeah, like these people probably really got killed. Well, not, well, obviously some people died, but I just mean like on a fiscal level too. But what that meant was not their um, firstborn children, whether like their youngest children are gonna are going to starve to death. What it meant was like their ability to climb the social ladder has been fundamentally interrupted. And they're like back at some kind of like meaningless low labor rank now. And I think that level of constant security is a really severe alteration of what it means to be a human being that I can't understand yet. That's true. Certainly we live in a time of immense surplus without historical precedent and that makes it hard for us to imagine other ways of being no one on earth knows how to make a can of beer right only the system knows <laughs> well and, and just to kind of piggyback off of the, all of this it's like nature's certainly like out of our control to a point and that's that i think that is similar to with virgil's time but like virgil's reaction right is like well you need to get it in order and you need to get it in order in its right way but it seems like our reaction is like, uh, well, we should start leaving it alone. <laughs> you know, like that's the, I mean, I was just watching this documentary and it was like the only way we're going to ever solve the problem with the oceans is if we just leave it alone for hundreds of years or, you know, some, I don't know what the number was, but there was some number of like, we just need to leave it be. And it's like, just that feels very magical thinking to me is like when people say, oh, what well, really the, the solution to the problem is just, yeah, let's just all stop using resources. It's like, okay, let's just all stop lusting after each other, I guess. I don't know. What that is no, but that's, but I mean, you see my point though. It's like, it, there's still that like built in view of things. Like just let it be, even like the, the like creating of wilderness areas, right? Just demarcating an area. Don't touch this land, leave it be, you know? What it seems, I mean, I think, I think leave it be is one of the approaches. I think probably the more popular approach is we just need to tinker with the technology and get it a little farther ahead. Not necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily the wiser approach, but I think that's the more popular one. But I think the question that we're asking maybe at a deeper level is in these sort of collisions, is it a matter of us adapting or us for forcing nature to adapt? Yeah, I mean, if we think about a storm or something as a sign, <laughs> to bring it back to Virgil, that, that is an ambiguous sign that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Well, that's the other thing we don't have is, is the radical ambiguity towards nature, right? Like we tries to go through like, why are the birds different in spring? There's no system of causes. And even if our causes are ultimately like, we kind of fudge and slip in a little bit of teleology into biology every now and then. We still have those explanations because they'll say, well, yeah, of course, like through evolutionary processes, the birds need uh, like a period of higher activity that corresponds to like higher caloric intake and procreative activities, right? And then they're gonna chirp more. You can pull at those strands and say, hmm, there's still a little bit of mystical thinking there, but it's definitely, 
we think there's an answer to everything, right? Like that every storm has a has a set of of traceable causes that every action in nature and it seems like he's initiating that here right he's like saying like and the person who knows is those causes is the happy guy but he also says like when he talks about the different kinds of plants right he says you may as well count the waves of sea oh the number of waves that roll across whatever sea Mm -hmm. than you would the different ways that plants can be planted and where they can be planted. And it's like taxonomy is literally naming every species of plants. Like people have taken up the thing that he considers a monstrous absurdity as a, as a legitimate human task. And that seems really peculiar because it seems in some ways born here. Like, like this really feels like an early scientific text where hmm. We're going to go through, we're going to sort out causes and we're going to order agriculture according to norms and standards that are rational and can be, you know, they're, they're a little bit gossipy, but they're mostly rational. And then on another way, like this book is completely pre-scientific and anti-scientific because it's about according human knowledge, not to an unlimited task, but to the very finite task of, of basically being happy enough not to die miserably. Thank you for joining us for the Quixotic Quest for the Key. Uh, next week, we'll be reading the second half of the Georgics. Again, we'd love to hear from you at keydollmythologies at protonmail.com and to see you on the Spotify, Apple, et cetera, podcast platforms. I was thinking, Greg, that that actually, that line, I forgot about that, but that really encapsulates it, what we were saying nicely. It's like he thinks about nature as something there's something fundamentally inexhaustible about the number of plants and trees and animals and that they cannot be counted. Ultimately, they cannot be counted and they cannot be ordered. And that's just like the, the science of taxonomy itself is sort of a repudiation of that, right? It's like mm -hmm. you do think of it as a finite number of exhaustible categories that can be counted and ordered. And that's what extinction is, right? We're constantly confronted with the finiteness of every living organism to the extent that they're finite in time, right? There are no more aurochs. They will never come back. No one will ever see an auroch again.